Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to be talking today about My Bodyguard, a great film from 1980. This came about because I posted a photo that I found of three of the young teen stars of My Bodyguard on the internet. And it became one of the most popular posts on the Full Cast and Crew Instagram page. So uh, that tells me that there's some love out there for this film, that for people like me who were 10, 11 years old in 1980, this may be an important film for our high school experiences. And it was a wonder to revisit it. I was really kind of nervous that it would hold up. But as I mentioned, uh, in posting the photo, I got a lot of comments from Instagram that said, don't worry, I just watched it recently. It really holds up. So I was emboldened last night to give it a rewatch and do some research and digging into a little bit of what makes this movie tick. I want to talk a bit about why it's great, a few of the things that maybe it suffers from, and we will get into that in a second. But first, I have a couple housekeeping things. Housekeeping! No, thank you. Sleeping. Housekeeping! Come back in an hour. If you're new to the podcast, I recorded an episode just for you. It's episode 125, and it's helpfully titled, If You're New to the Podcast, Start Here. Now, this one contains a very brief synopsis of what the podcast aspires to be all about, a bit about me as your host, some of my recurring guests, favorite episodes, different types of episodes, and more. So please check that out if you're new to the pod, since we have 125. 526 episodes and counting it can be a bit daunting to dip a toe in. Of course, you can always just scroll through and pick a movie that you happen to love or that you've always been curious about, and you can jump in that way. But if you want a bit of an orientation, I recorded this episode, and I'm going to continue to mention it in the beginnings here just so that people can get caught up if they need to. Also, something I never do, please like and subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it. Here's what you can do. Since I will never run ads here to interrupt your listening pleasure, there's really only one thing I ask of you other than just listening and enjoying the podcast in whatever form or fashion uh, you're able to. Do this. Pick one friend who loves movies. Send them a link from Spotify or from Apple Podcasts to an episode of this podcast that you particularly enjoy and that you think or know that they'd enjoy. That's it. That's all you got to do. We grow here one listener at a time and hearing from those of you out there who take the time to reach out and let me know that you're digging a particular episode of the podcast is truly awesome. And I can't even express enough how much that really makes all of this worthwhile. One final bit of housekeeping. Over the last few years, I've gotten a lot of requests from people who are interested in starting their own podcasts, which is great. And they wonder if they can pick my brain about how best to go about it. I've done this probably five or seven times uh, over the last three years. Always happy to spend the time talking to people, giving them the benefit of whatever knowledge and experience I have, which isn't much, but it's at least, I think, real world experience and something to go on. But I've realized that these conversations usually take at a minimum an hour and really a couple of hours to cover kind of everything. So it occurred to me, why not just record an episode about how to pod, what to think about, what sort of equipment you're going to need, what the procedure is like, how I've gone about it, what I've learned. And then when someone asks me, 
to pick my brain about the podcast or about how to podcast, I can just say, hey, guess what? I'm going to send you a link to this. Now, I'm not going to publish this because I don't think it's of general interest to the audience for the Full Casting Crew podcast, but I have recorded it. And if you are curious about starting your own podcast, which I really, really encourage you to think about doing, um, I'm happy to send you this standalone episode you can email the podcast at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. That's fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com. Shoot me an email. I'll shoot you a link to that episode, and you can listen to it in your own time. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. Let's get into my bodyguard. Oh, just some kids from school who want to kill me. That's the first line that made me laugh out loud when I was rewatching this last night. Chris Makepeace, who plays Clifford Peach, the recently relocated Chicago teenager who is about to start attending a new school, is picked up by the hotel's limousine driver after his first day of school, where Cliff has been introduced to a cadre of bullies led by Matt Dillon. And... The driver says, uh, who are those guys? Because they're kind of pounding on the car and they're trying to get it. Cliff. And Cliff's answer is, oh, just some kids from school who want to kill me. It's such a great indication of the droll deadpan wit that I think really spreads throughout this fantastic film. It's the tone, the pitch of the characters, the characterizations and the writing that I think elevates this above quite a few high school movies and quite a few much more well-known films of the era, which we'll get into in a bit. But I think speaking personally as a kid who also relocated to a completely new area uh, in third grade, a little bit younger than, than Cliff does in this movie, but it's when you're a kid, right? That's if you've been through that, I mean, it's almost insane to put a kid through it. It can be a trauma. <laughs> like if you're coming from a place where you're comfortable, you have a routine, uh, and then you are relocated and you have to literally go to this much larger, much more daunting educational edifice and somehow navigate and find your way. I don't care whether you're in third grade or whether you're in ninth grade. It is hard to do as a kid, as a teenager. And so I think... It's such an obvious um, vein to mine for a great high school film. And as a starting off point for a screenplay, I think it's a pretty good one. So a little bit about the background of how we arrived at having the film in the first place. My Bodyguard was directed by Tony Bill, who at the time was probably better known for kind of being a supporting actor in Hollywood in the 60s and the 70s uh, than he was a director. And this was his first directorial effort. He actually produced The Sting in 1973, uh, for which he shared the Academy Award for Best Picture with the then married couple Michael Phillips and Julia Phillips. Julia Phillips, of course, 
writing the seminal Hollywood memoir, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, about her experiences. But Tony Bill was an actor. He had some supporting roles in films like Shampoo. Uh, continuing on through the 80s, he was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He was in Less Than Zero. And he started as a director with My Bodyguard. And he directed a few other well-known films, such as Five Corners, Crazy People, Untamed Heart, Flyboys. And interestingly, he owned a restaurant with Dudley Moore in Venice, California. Um, so Tony Bill, as I mentioned, had become a producer. And I think the origin story for my bodyguard stemmed around the fact that someone gave him the screenplay. And he really liked the, the the tone of this screenplay and tracked the writer down, who was a relative unknown at the time. Uh, it was written by a man named Alan Ormsby, who went on to write a few other films that sort of strangely don't necessarily fit with uh, what you would presume the screenplay writer for My Bodyguard, uh, you know, which feels like kind of a John Hughes-esque territory. Uh, but Ormsby would go on to write Cat People for Paul Schrader and Porky's 2 the next day. That's got to be an indignity on your resume. Uh, I haven't seen Porky's or Porky's 2, so I can't speak to whether Porky's 2 is one of the rarest moments where the Hollywood sequel vastly trumps the original film, but I don't even know if the original film is anything worth noting other than being some sort of risque, semi-porn comedy film. I don't know. Never saw it. Anyway, Alan Ormsby, you know, cue all the cue all the Porky's devotees. I'm looking at you, Fraser Rice. I'm sure I'm going to get an email from you. Porky's is so good. Okay. Anyway, so Ormsby uh, had worked in horror films and had done some makeup effects. Uh, he had also um, wrote a film about the serial killer Ed Gein, <laughs> which is also strange work for the man who would then write this kind of most sensitive and interesting high school, presumably Romana Clef. I have not been able to find a lot about what the origin of his interest in and writing of this screenplay was. Uh, I haven't really been able to locate his presence. He's still alive. He's 78 years old. But anyway, he'd written the script and it came to the attention of Tony Bill, um, who liked it for its characterization. I think Tony spent a lot of months trying to get the money to make this film. And that didn't come together particularly easily. But eventually he uh, found a producer and was able to cobble together the funds to, I think, produce it for something like $4 million, I want to say, which isn't bad for 1980. Um, and as a Chicago set movie, it has a lot of Chicago actors in it that we'll talk about in a second. It's got a pretty interesting supporting cast. It's one of those films where there are no stars per se. I guess you could say Ruth Gordon is probably the biggest star, even at the time. No one else was really a star. Matt Dillon is in his first three films around this time. Chris Makepeace had been in Meatballs just before this. That's what brought him to the attention of the producers. Um, no one else is really of note at the time. Martin Mull maybe had a bit of a career, but you know, there's certainly no movie stars in it. Nobody who could open a film. So 
finally casting the film and arranging the shoot in Chicago, uh, we end up with this cast. And let's just talk a little bit about who plays who in the film and some of my thoughts about their performances. So Matt Dillon plays the bully Moody. And it's, it's a really interesting and good performance from Matt Dillon, who laces this bully through with atypical amounts of charm and intelligence and savvy. And counterintuitively, there's this appeal to Moody that makes him much more interesting than just a one-dimensional carbon copy high school bully, although he is that. He's funny. And again, it's the intelligence of the tone of both the writing and the performances and that Tony Bill and Alan Ormsby allowed these actors to kind of go to a pretty cool and unique and interesting place. It gives the movie a cool, it gives it an elan, it gives it a, a vibe and a feel that is easy to appreciate now. But when you consider high school movies as a genre, and even though the, you know, the most venerated and vaunted high school movies of the era are the John Hughes films, right? Even when you compare this to those films, I'm going to say the characterizations in this movie, in My Bodyguard, are much more realistic, much more grounded in a humanity, and they feel real in a way that all those John Hughes characters and as iconic as those films are and as fun as they are to watch, they don't ever approach this degree of realness uh, that I think some of the actors in this film do. None of those John Hughes films have the heart this movie has really at its center. None of those John Hughes movies are willing to go there in terms of male friendship in the way Tony Bill does in this film. And so it, it kind of starts with these introductory uh, moments that you get from these characters, which are so great. You know, Tony Bill is such a skilled director the first time out. The movie opens and you have this, this scene of Cliff riding his uh, bicycle to the hotel. And in, and this is where the, the credits are, are, are rolling. And it's, it's so good because it, it kind of introduces you to this character almost wordlessly and he um, he's waving and talking to people as he's riding his bike. And it both sets the scene for Chicago. And it tells you a little bit about Cliff in a way that is necessary because he's not coming from a typical background in a high school kid movie. Right. His father is the manager of a hotel. He lives in the hotel. They are new to Chicago or, or they're not new to Chicago, but they've relocated from another uh, private high school, I guess, is the way it's set up. And his grandmother also lives in the hotel and causes trouble in the hotel bar. We'll get into that later. So it's a really deft use of uh, the, the, you know, just the, the, the cinema of, of Tony Bill, that he, he's able to uh, get these, these concepts across through this kind of combination of tracking shots as he's following, you know, Cliff to, uh, to the hotel. And it also works hand in hand with the kind of surprisingly interesting score from the composer Dave Grusin, who's just you know been at this for 50, 60 years. Uh, he has won Academy Awards. He's won 10 Grammy Awards. He founded GRP Records. He's just he's just a guy that has been in the music business doing these things for 
a uh, hundred different IMDb titles. Okay, everything from Tootsie on Golden Pond, The Firm, Fabulous Baker Boys, uh, Mulholland Falls. I mean, he's just done a majillion things and a ton of TV stuff. And the score for My Bodyguard is kind of, I was surprised. It was sort of jaunty and almost classical in a way that kind of works. I, at times, was wondering, am I feeling this is intrusive? But I was only asking myself the question because I was noting the score in a positive way. And ultimately, I don't think it's intrusive. But it is atypical, right? It's not, I guess, the John Hughes innovation would be all of the contemporary pop music of the time that's being used in his films. Well, that's not what we're getting here. This is a almost old-fashioned scored picture. And I think it really works. And that's kind of where we land and are introduced to Martin Mull and we're introduced to Ruth Gordon. So that's Chris Makepeace, who is, um, I'm going to say, since Rick Brown and I recently did The Muppet Show, you know, Chris Makepeace, Clifford Peach in this film, he's sort of the Kermit of the film. Everybody in the film has to interact with him. And in doing so, we learn about themselves and then and then we learn about Cliff. So he's kind of this central figure. And in a way, the movie begins and you you believe it's going to be his story, which in some ways it is. But in another way, he's sort of a vehicle, a vessel that we're going to kind of ride like we're riding on a Chicago uh, elevated train here. We're going to switch cars a couple of times over the course of the movie. And we're going to realize that the movie is really about some of the other characters from time to time. Most notably, Adam Baldwin's character, Linderman, who is spoken about long before he appears on screen with this type of school, high school mythology and reverence that I think rings really true to those of us who grew up in the pre-internet era when rumor and innuendo and stories were proclaimed to be truthful about individuals in the school, the things that they were supposed to have done. He shot a cop. He he raped a teacher. I mean, all this crazy stuff is kind of attached to this mythic figure. And Adam Baldwin does a phenomenal job. I would say his is the most impressive acting performance in the film. His Linderman character undergoes and has the opportunity to show so many different sides uh, than even the wounded high school character trope would have you expect. He really gets to do a lot. And at a relatively young age, he's a freaking good actor. So, Linderman, again, is held off screen for a while while we play in the world of Moody, the bully, and his, uh, his team of, of fellow bullies and Chris Makepeace uh, and some business that goes on in the hotel, which is a bit distracting. We'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, some other bit players that are just great. There's an actor named Paul Quant. He plays Carson. He absolutely steals most of the scenes he's in. When I see this kid in this movie, I'm like, I've seen him in a hundred things. But then I look him up on IMDb and he's only in one movie, this one. I have no idea why. I've reached out to him to see if uh, I could grab an interview with him about how he came to be in the film, how he came to be in no subsequent films, because he's so good in this and he carves out such a specific and unique piece of territory that you you just sort of wonder why he didn't have a long career in all of the high school films that were to come 
being this kind of very specific world weary ninth grader who always expects the worst things are going to happen, has a very sharp sense of his own vulnerabilities. He's hilarious and deadpan. And I could have sworn I've seen him in a, in a jillion things. And I don't, uh, I could have sworn he was, I was like, is he in the life serial commercial? No. Uh, He's got one credit, so that's a little bit of a mystery, but he is absolutely hilarious and scene-stealing. Of course, we have, I believe, Joan Cusack's first movie role as Shelley, a braces, frizzy-haired uh, classmate of Cliff's who is in love with Moody in an unrequited uh, romance where he hurts her feelings uh, caustically in a diner. Jennifer Beals, in her first role in really a non-speaking role almost as Shelley's friend. Uh, Martin Mull, who I mentioned, previously covered some of Martin Mull genius in my episode about WKRP, where Rick Brown and I talked about uh, this worthwhile 1970s film, FM, where Martin Mull plays a disc jockey. And a couple of reviewers at the time noted that Martin Mull's playing a very kind of straight character here. Like he doesn't have any countercultural vibe like a lot of other Martin Mull characterizations of the eras do. But he works very well. He he conveys a sense of of decency and trying and also an awareness that he's sort of failing his son in some fundamental ways just because he's trying to keep his head above water in his hotel job and he's trying to fend off this duplicitous rival. Um, he does a good job. As I mentioned, Ruth Gordon is the mother of Martin Mull's character, the grandmother of Cliff. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm a big Ruth Gordon fan. We've talked about her many times. It is time to drop in and mention the Columbo Cinematic Universe, of which she is perhaps the most card-carrying member because she is in what I think is the very best episode of Columbo that's ever been. Uh, that's ever been. And she usually imbues all of her film roles with an indispensable charm and a quirkiness. I think about her uh, a couple of times on the podcast when Ted Jessup and I did Rosemary's Baby. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant Ruth Gordon performance that runs against type for her, which I like. I like when she's playing bad. Of course, Harold and Maude, and we're firmly in the Maude territory here. And I have to say, it's probably one of the weak links of the film. Her storyline particularly, it doesn't add anything to what we're here for. And if anything, it's just a distraction that we don't really need. Um, so there is, there are some aspects of the film that represent first-time screenwriter or relatively new screenwriter, first-time director. It's almost as if they didn't really know how to pare away some of the chaff and focus on the the wheat that was here at the center of this screenplay. But luckily there was enough at the center and there was enough in the casting that the, the real heart and the charm of the film emerges unscathed, even though some of these ancillary bits involving, you know, people like John Houseman for crying out loud uh, is kind of wasted in one or two scenes in this film as a, as a threat to the Martin Mull characters, uh, professional aspirations uh, and a foil for Ruth Gordon's machinations and then we have some Chicago notables, uh, other sort of actors that appear that it was funny. So, uh, you know, you're in the second city, right? So there are some second city notables. There are some future TV notables. Uh, Tim Kazarinsky, uh, speaking of a second city guy, and I believe an SNL guy later on, uh, shows up as a, as a repairman at the school, uh, or no, at the, at, the, at the hotel, rather, is pretty funny. George Went, 
uh, similarly has a small bit. Uh, John and Joan Cusack's father, Dick Cusack, who was an actor and an acting teacher of note himself, uh, is the principal in the film. He's pretty funny. I think this was his last role, I want to say. John Houseman, as I mentioned. And Craig Richard Nelson, who's kind of a that guy of the era if you look him up. Not Craig T. Nelson, mind you. Craig Richard Nelson. He plays the duplicitous uh, side man to the Martin Mull manager character at the hotel. He has kind of an oily, uh, oleaginous 80s charm with the glasses and the hair and the three-piece suits. He's pretty good, too. So those surrounding people are all really good. And there's one I want to mention in particular because she was so good that I looked her up and I thought, oh, okay, that makes sense. And that's Catherine Grody plays the English teacher who manages to reach all of these students uh, in her class where they're talking about Shakespeare and about Romeo and Juliet. And she has just a handful of scenes with these characters, but they are all really deftly handled. And like all of the 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 uh, kid characters, even though she's not a kid character, she's one of the more fully sketched adult characters. I don't even say fully sketched. That's the wrong way to put it. It's just that she has such a clear sense of who this teacher is and how she goes about her business. She doesn't take everything personally when Moody is mouthing off in class, however inappropriately. She's aware that she can reach kids. And in fact, she does. And there's a really wonderful scene in the film where she's reaching all of them. And even though we don't yet know things about Linderman, she's reaching Linderman. She's reaching Cliff Peach. She's reaching some of the other classmates through the power of the written word and the spoken written word. And it's a really well done scene. And when I looked her up, I was like, oh, okay. I just read about Catherine Grody because she's married to Mandy Patinkin. And as many of you may know, during the pandemic, their uh, Instagram stories became very widely watched and known because, you know, they've been married forever and they are aging together. And I think as I read in a a variety uh, notice about the fact that they're turning these Instagram stories into a TV show, that it was sort of about the the splendor and the wonder of being married for, you know, 50 plus years and the agony of the same. So, you know, they squabble, uh, but they respect and love each other and they age in place together. And she turns in a great role as, uh, as the teacher. And, and again, it's the world of the kids and it's the world of the kids. that's the center of the movie. Almost all the adult storylines don't really work, but hers does. So that's your cast. I think I'm not, I don't think I'm leaving anybody out. Um, Here's some of the things that I've thought of when I think about why this film works so well. At its heart, you know, it's a film about people leaving us when either we need them the most or people who have left us who then aren't there when we need them. So in the course of the film, we learn that Peach's mom, uh, was killed, I think in a car accident. Linderman's brother is a big storyline. What happened there? He is, he is being chewed up by this secret that he bears relating to his brother's death. And Linderman himself, when uh, confronted by Mike, who Moody hires as his bodyguard, uh, he leaves, he leaves Moody. I mean, he leaves, um, 
he leaves Cliff in Cliff's moment of need because he can't fight. He can't fight back. He takes abuse from Mike. He allows his beloved year-long motorcycle project to be destroyed by Mike, and he's chased off. And and so Cliff, who thought he needed Linderman, is left without Linderman. And I'm not making too much of it to say that I think these are some of the interesting and almost lofty goals that this film reaches and puts in motion here. And in doing so, it's got a heart. It's very much a, a film kind of like Breaking Away, which I read it compared to and which I think was nominated for some Academy Awards. There's been a little bit of chatter in some of the stuff I've read about reappraising uh, My Bodyguard that it too should have been maybe noticed for you know, a Best Original Screenplay Academy Award nomination because all these years later, you know, this is a film that still resonates with a lot of people. Um, it's got a heart, but it's not saccharine. And that's that's such a key difference, right? And again... It's hard not to compare it to all these John Hughes movies that would come, but this is before that. You know, the John Hughes movies weren't cool. They were of the moment, but they weren't counterculture. They weren't um, they weren't underground. They were manifestations of a certain slice of largely white, middle-class, high school uh you know, representation, but this film, my bodyguard has, has smarts and intellect and it's got a little bit of a bite and it, it's not corny. And I think that's, what's cool about it. It's got great one liners. Um, it's also about kids not really being parented either out of, you know, circumstance with, with cliff, whose dad is just trying to stay employed and juggle his, his wayward mother and juggle being a dad to a teenage son without his partner who uh, has passed away or neglect, which I think we can assume that Moody is the product of some kind of fascinating amount of parental neglect. Linderman, we do get a glimpse of Linderman's mother. I wouldn't say it's a neglectful situation because the one scene that she has is being very concerned for him. Where is he? He hasn't called. He hasn't come home. If you see him, please tell him. I'm very concerned. You get the sense in her brief scene through a screen door that she too is broken by the things that happened in her family. But another great example of the uh, wit and the slyness and I think the cool of this film, there's an early scene between Cliff and Linderman where Cliff asks Linderman, and what does your dad do? And the, the answer from Linderman is he watches TV, which is played as a joke and, play, and plays as one and is such a great line. But it's also a movie about kids not really being parented. And I think if you grew up in the 70s and the 80s and you, like myself, uh, were a product of a one-parent household, your parents at work a lot, you know, it's, man, all praise to uh, Penny Silo uh, up there in heaven for doing the best that she damn could. Because imagine going to work and not being able to come home until three or four hours after your kid gets home from junior high, high school. And you don't know what they're doing. You're not around hovering the way we are, the way I am with my 10-year-old now. It's just such a different time. And I think this film speaks to those of us who grew up in that time because we both relate to the uh, subdivisions in the high school halls, as Rush would say. You know, that was such a big part of my life. That's probably a big part of all of your lives. Um you know, not all of us were super listener Stacy out there. Uh, popular, kind, 
funny, accomplished, you know, not self-destructive. I mean, she kind of had it all together in our high school where we both went to high school together, but I certainly did not. So um, I'm just kidding, Stacy. But anyway, thank you for being a super listener. So I think it's about kids not being parented. And it also doesn't talk down to the concerns and the experiences of high school kids. It plays them for the weight that they feel they have when we're experiencing them. And it represents the depth of feeling of those days in a way that also gives credence to the experience and the concerns of these kids. I also think it's a great Chicago movie in a different kind of way because it's set in and around various locations of Chicago and it uses the locations of Chicago really well. It feels like a real lived place. You get a sense of location and place, even though we're not spending a lot of time uh, in certain places. So I think it has a, a lot of charm. At the time, uh, there were some really good reviews about the film that came out. Roger Ebert said, My Bodyguard is a small treasure. A movie about believable characters in an unusual situation. It doesn't pretend to be absolutely realistic, and the dynamics of its big city high school are simplified for the purposes of the story. But this movie is fun to watch because it touches memories that are shared by most of us, and because its young characters are recognizable individuals and not simplified cartoon figures like so many movie teenagers. I, I think he really puts his finger on something that's super important about this film. The character of Cliff, as played by Chris Makepeace, you know, he's not your run-of-the-mill, picked-upon weakling. He's smart, and he knows it. He's not afraid to stand up to... I mean, he's afraid to stand up to Moody, but he does it anyway, because it's the right thing to do, and not because he's some martyr or he's holier than thou, but the character has a different kind of allowance to be fully rounded in a way that I don't think we normally see in these types of movies. And I think Ebert could have put his, put his finger on that. Um, now, in terms of some of the things the movie doesn't necessarily do well, like I said, the Ruth Gordon storyline is pretty useless. It's always fun to see Ruth Gordon. I'm not sure we really need her here. You don't really feel any sense of a relationship between her and Cliff. Uh, it would have been interesting to see if, if, maybe a more experienced screenwriter and director combo could have figured out a way to weave her into the storyline a bit more intrinsically. But again, feels like something kind of tacked on, but it doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment of the film. I had read a couple things before I watched the movie that some people were looking at it now with, you know, 2022 glasses and saying like, well, it's unfortunate that the end, you know, violence is, is used to indicate triumph of the good over the bad. And, you know, it would have been more interesting to do it a different way. I, I don't really buy that per se. I think that the, the last part of the film, uh, the fact that there's these two confrontations, the first confrontation is when Moody is humiliated by the presence of Linderman and all of the kids finally get their comeuppance on Moody. I think it's really well played by Matt Dame, Matt Dillon, who shows us this wounded kind of uh, insecure person that's underneath the bully persona. That's a really great scene. And then when Moody brings Mike, who Mike haunted my years from watching this film in 1980. I thought Mike was such a terrifying figure at the time. I felt a little bit of that watching it last night. Uh, the actor who plays him, I've got to look up his name here. I should have this quickly, but he's really good. Uh, Hank Salas plays Mike. I don't know. I was so terrified of the idea of Mike at the time because I was a picked on kid in a similar way. Mike with his 
his red tank top and his muscles and his calm, calm speaking voice. I thought you said this guy was tough. You know, he's got um, such a, a teasing, threatening way of picking on Linderman and asserting his dominance. It's creepy. It's scary. It was really effective then. And it's still effective now. It's a really great turn. And so they have this fight and then Linderman doesn't fight back and runs off and he disappoints Chris, I mean, uh, Clifford. And, and then there's the return sort of battle where, uh, where Linderman does fight Mike and beats him up. And then Cliff, fights moody and breaks his nose a really funny good turn again from matt dillon you broke my nose um and they all kind of go off together you know as friends not not all of them but but our protagonists go off together as friends and that's where the film ends does the film limp to the finish line a bit with some of the way this uh comes together maybe but the real center point of the whole film is linderman and the story turns that happen as we learn about Linderman and the scene where after he has disappointed Cliff by not fighting back and Cliff tracks Linderman down and they begin uh, walking and looking for a motorcycle part and Linderman eventually breaks down and tearfully confesses the real story of what happened with his brother and the gun. And it's an impressive handling of a tricky monologue uh, from Adam Baldwin at the time. And I think this has got to be one of his uh, early films, if not his first film, which is all the more impressive. Of course, he would go on to be in Full Metal Jacket, uh, Firefly, uh, I'm sorry, Serenity, Firefly, a lot of, lot of work. Um, but boy, so he was, I'm going to say he was 18, 17, 18 years old at the time they filmed, the fil- filmed this movie. He's just got a phenomenal handle on this monologue. I mean, tricky thing to do. And that's what I meant when the when when we're kind of riding this L car with Chris and then it, uh, with Chris, I keep calling him Chris, Chris Makepeace with Cliff. And then we jump over into Linderman's world and we, we really learn about Linderman and we learn about what he's been carrying. And there's another great scene with Cliff and the teacher as she shares what she knows about Linderman. But it really becomes the story of Adam Baldwin's character movie for that kind of I'm not even going to say the middle third because it's sort of only a part of it, but it's such an important part of it. And again, it gets to this idea of male friendship and the vulnerability with which these two are allowed to become friends feels real, even as it's sort of impressive, not only for its time, but now that it's that it's allowed to be sensitive. They're allowed to be vulnerable. They're allowed to be opening up to each other in a way that is so real that it can be a little almost uncomfortable. Uh, the vulnerability and they did a great job in the costume and the hair and makeup for Adam Baldwin's character when he's this fearsome mythological figure. He's in a he's in an army jacket with a dirty t-shirt and he's got kind of cuts on his face and his hair is greasy. Uh, he looks greasy. Then when he befriends Cliff, there's a period in the middle of the film where he's with Cliff at the hotel and he's wearing a sweater and he has a big wide collared shirt and they've washed his hair. He's not greasy and he looks innocent. He looks kid-like, even though he's sort of hulking over everyone else. That's part of the Linderman mythos. Um, And then when he lets Cliff down, when Cliff finds him, he's once again back in the... uh, He's back in the army jacket. He's back to the greasy hair for the confessional part of it. Uh, so 
that, that, that's an interesting and wonderfully done aspect of this film is that it allows us to kind of spend time in a couple of these different characters world. I think it would have been great instead of the Ruth Gordon time. I would have rather have gone to Moody's house and seen what's going on there because Matt Dillon is such a capable teen actor at this point. He could have done some interesting stuff. I would think that would have would have informed this film a little bit better than this Ruth Gordon storyline. But I get why it's there. Anyway, really enjoyed watching this film. It really does hold up. I think it speaks to all of us who had to confront any of these issues uh, as a kid or now. And it's a wonderful message film. And I think it's really fun to revisit and rewatch it. If you haven't seen it in a while, cue it up. I think I watch it on Amazon Prime. It's pretty widely available. You won't be disappointed. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it.